Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, My guest is Maggie Jackson. She's the author of a book called Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure, which I'm sure is uh, uncomfortable for a lot of people. But uh, I think it'll be uh, a very interesting twist on uh, on that topic. We also may talk a little bit about distraction and being fragmented in today's world with all the distractions we have. But uh, we'll see. So welcome, Maggie. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Tell me a bit about your background. What led to you, you know, having the desire to write the book on CERT? Uh, sure. I come a journalism background. So I was a foreign correspondent in Tokyo and Europe, uh, London for many years. Uh, then I came back to the States and write, wrote one of the very first work-life balance workplace columns in the United States. Um, so I was, again, doing more big picture social trend kind of work. That led me to be very interested in technology's impact on humanity, on, you know, family life, on our ability to work, our mind, et cetera. You know, back when I was really told that basically unless you were a programmer or you're writing about the business of buying computers, that, that you know, that that kind of reporting wasn't wasn't welcome initially. And that made me all the more determined to do it. What do you mean it wasn't welcome? Why? Oh, because news organizations felt that you know, the advent of technology, computers, um, even the first smartphone going up to 2007, that was a time when, you know, it was, gee whiz, there's another gadget and wow, it's going to save the world or, oh, maybe it'll ruin the world. But uh, basically the reporters on the beat uh, were writing about the information superhighway and they were the tech reporters, the guys who knew how computers worked uh, uh, literally, usually guys, they weren't really interested in the human questions of how it was affecting our kids' minds or how it would affect memory or how this led to an exacerbation of the mobile, ultra-mobile, you know, snack-on-the-go kind of society. These were all questions I felt needed to be asked. And so I really had to fight to get to the table to write about technology. And that reporting, starting even in the mid-90s, I was writing about technology. And that led ultimately to my uh, interest in the erosion of attention, not just due to technology, but in modern contemporary living. And that, you know, my second book was Distracted. The uh, Reclaiming Our Focus in a World of Lost Attention is the, um, that's the title of the updated 2018 edition. And, and that was seen as a pretty, you know, forward-thinking book or a book that kind of broke ground um, way back in the day when people weren't questioning technology very much. Yeah, I think uh, years ago when people would say, oh, you know, TV rots your brain or don't be on the phone or don't do this or that. I don't know. The feeling I got was like, don't be ridiculous. It's not that bad. It's okay. And now that a lot of people have been damaged and affected personally by this, I think now people have hopefully much more of an appreciation. I think older people do than the younger people. Like, um, I remember there was a, a book by uh, Johan Hari, 
was like uh, something about distraction. Soul and focus is what it was. And I got it for all my kids to read. And they were like, this book's not true. It's okay. And, you know, and all the adults were like, no, this is terrible. Kids can't focus. They can't think. And it's funny. All my kids were denying it. You know, they're all teenagers. And I, I, I just thought it was a funny story. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I went to a play once called Distracted, and it was really about ADHD and a sort of a sad story. But it was portrayed, the, the play was portrayed as um, a comedy. And yet around me, people were talking during the play, and it was all about kind of a, a mom sort of losing you know touch with her kid and not knowing how to help the kid learn focus. And so, I mean, there's a sort of mix of feelings. I, I actually think that it's a good thing that we have more debate and conflict in and around technology now, because as I was saying before, it was really binary. The responses were binary. Either it was all great, you know, kids have to learn to multitask and then they'll be successful and they'll be the next CEO. That multitasking was a job description in, you know, really. And or, you know, then there was a lot of hand wringing and, you know, predictions of the end of the world thanks to, you know, computers, et cetera. But now, first of all, the research is beginning to come in, or it's not just beginning. I mean, the research on a memory and attention and multitasking and the damage that can occur, oh, not just in the moment when people are stressed and frustrated and interrupted, you know, they're less accurate, you know, they're just not doing as good a job. Now, that's been proven, but the damage over time is now been proven that people who multitask the most, usually, you know, juggling around on different devices, begin to lose the capacity to just see what's relevant and what's not in their environment. I mean, that's pretty huge. Really? What does that mean? You know, if you translated that into real world action, well, it kind of means that the next celebrity Yahoo headline about, you know, silly, trivial things are treated as important as, you know, uh, climate change and, and warnings and things like that. But, you know, basically, these are studies that show that in laboratory settings, you know, targets or stimuli that are important or critical, you know, you're supposed to be looking at X, but you really are constantly looking at Y. And, and people who multitask the most just can't see what's important in their environment. And so that might be, you know, in your when you're in a meeting at work and you're multitasking your way through it, you're obviously only half listening. People think that they're doing a great job, but they're not. And that's also proven uh, that basically they're only uh, able to, they're not really able to come out, walk away from that meeting knowing what was important or even picking up on the nuances. Maybe there are a few people in the room who are quietly dissenting and that's important to know, or your team is unhappy, but you're not really aware of that. You know, that has some re repercussions. Um, so fragmenting our attention is something that humans are very, very bad at, and we overestimate constantly. You can look on, you know, the highways and roads and we overestimate our capacity to do it. And sometimes it's lethal, but for the most part, it just lowers your cognitive ability. Well, let's let's go back towards the uncertainty book. I know distraction. You've studied a lot. You've dealt with it a lot. Then we can go more into it. But you know, again, we wanted to to focus on that. What's um? How does uncertainty play into this, or is that just a totally different topic? You know, is it is it related at all to distraction? Yes, it is. I mean, after I wrote distracted. I was interested in what can you do with a moment's focus, basically. So 
if you can, you know, skillfully utilize your attention, what would you use it for? Attention is a vehicle. And basically the answer is, well, thinking well. And there are a lot of different answers, but basically, so I started to write a book about thinking in the digital age and what kind of thinking is, you know, kind of backburnered and what's frontburnered, what's the, what are the costs and what are the gains as we're, you know, wedded to our devices. And the first chapter was about uncertainty because I was really interested in slower, more contemporary types of thinking that, you know, really you don't have time for when you're constantly being, you know, being fed instant answers and constantly, you know, rushing to judgment and things like that. I'm only mildly exaggerating here. Um, so basically, I, I wrote about uncertainty, but then I realized, well, most people's views of uncertainty, just like their views of attention, are pretty, you know, wrong. I mean, I went into this thinking that uncertainty was kind of this, you know, abyss or or this sort of foggy, monolithic thing that you just wanted to get rid of as quickly as possible. And, and that's how psychology is treated uncertainty. That's how the business world, how medicine is treated uncertainty, you know, just get rid of it, you know, as, as quickly as possible. But then I found that, again, there was this explosion of research showing that uncertainty is really important for good problem solving for creativity. It's highly related to curiosity, to all these sorts of, to agility. Uncertainty is what I call wisdom in motion. And, and right here, I should pause and define what I mean by uncertainty, because they're basically generally two different kinds. One is the unknown or the uncertainty. You know, you see on headlines saying uncertainty roils the stock markets, etc. What about that uh, that four part matrix like known knowns, uh, known unknowns, unknown unknowns? You know, I think it's it's not the Eisenhower matrix. I think I know who it was. Anyway, I'm smiling or someone. Yes, he referred to that. But basically, the first type of uncertainty, what I'm talking about, is the unknown. That's what humans cannot know, and that's why you know, for hundreds of years, people have tried to address this through likelihood, through probabilistic mathematical reasoning, et cetera, et cetera. That's a different thing than epistemic uncertainty, which is you know, the matrix you're talking about, what's known to the human, what is unknown, what is little known, what is the, you know, what is the spectrum of knownness? Well, that's the human response to what we cannot know. And so that uncertainty is not ignorance. Uncertainty is by definition reaching, you know, being aware of reaching the limits of your knowledge. Uh, so your kid might have the sniffles, and you don't know if basically it's COVID or it could be a cold or it could be their spring allergies or whatnot. That's uncertainty. You, you could be this, it could be that. And so it's a very different thing than the unknown that's, in, and, you know, basically we can only kind of get a toehold on. It's how the human meets the unknown. That's uncertainty. And that's, it's really important to understand that so that we can better approach what we don't know and then push forward into the unknown. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com 
and click support us today. Now back to the show. So is the book full of case studies where uncertainty played a role in success or is it, uh, you know, kind of a primer on how to evaluate certainty that you're feeling or experiencing and harness it for the good? Well, the book I, talk about? I frame the book by through each chapter is a different type of thinking that I call uncertainty in action. So I'm basically walking people through ways in which uncertainty strengthens thinking and leads to creativity and leads to getting along with your neighbor, even though you hate their politics. And so, you know, I talk about adaptive expertise, which is a kind of, you know, expertise uh, that's basically a type of, you know, that that's when the, you know, the surgeon and the accountant or the military general is able to be unsure in a crisis moment in order to deliberate further. Um, whereas routine experts just hang out with whatever their, you know, heuristic mental, they're, they're applying old old solutions to new problems, which doesn't work. Uh, and so basically, I, I each chapter is a different type of uncertainty. There are lots of case studies. I was in operating rooms up in Toronto watching these, you know, surgeons, one of whom was not adaptive and really almost did a lethal error in the operating room. And, 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 and the main point there was that he was the type of expert we adore, the quick, swaggering um, person who's always sure. I mean, many, many people have told me, I would love my doctor to be unsure, but actually uh, intolerance of uncertainty is related to over-diagnosis, over-testing, um, poor mental well-being in doctors. I mean... Well, if we started with the, the schooling, I mean, like, I'll give you an example. So I don't mind, I'm pretty comfortable with using numbers to get ballparks on things, but a lot of people are not. So I asked my wife why. She says, well, I think a lot of people, when they go to school, you know, they're taught, if you don't get the exact right answer, it's wrong, that's it, you know, and that's bad. So I would guess that in school, people are taught uncertainty is bad. You have to have the quote unquote right answer. So maybe that trains people. So later in life, they, they're avoiding at all costs. That's uh, dangerous to them with their career. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, there are very big historic reasons. I mean, we live in a kind of efficiency oriented culture. And so the outcome is what's important. That's exactly what you're saying. The outcome, the right or wrong answer is what's important. The trend toward more multiple choice tests is exactly uh, underscores that trend. You're, you know, people aren't as interested in process uh, as they are in outcome, right or wrong answer. So that tends to lead to, you know, snap judgment and not really understanding this, what uncertainty is, is the space between question and answer. And when you can open up that space and be comfortable in that space, as uncomfortable as it is, uh, then you're able to be a better thinker. Then you're not just getting an answer, you're getting the better answer. And, and secondly, uncertainty is really important in messy, ill-defined situations. I mean, today I was just doing research about uncertainty in medicine. And, you know, the medical schools have, again, used lots of multiple choice testing when kids are thrown into kind of simulation kids. I mean, medical students are thrown into simulation type scenarios where they have to, you know, they're told the the, the dummy on the table, a very lifelike, simulated, highly tech, high tech dummy, you know, is a pregnant woman with a cardiac problem. Well, typically in medical schools, they're judged by whether they get a right diagnosis or wrong. So in order to make the cases scored well or neatly, you know, the cases are all routine. But that's not life. I mean, really, what what uncertainty does is uh, is help you if skillfully, if we know how to skillfully use our uncertainty, harness our uncertainty, 
then we can meet up with what's new, unexpected, ambiguous. That's what that's what uncertainty is all about. And that's why humans have uncertainty, basically. I mean, if we were always using um, old solutions and the mental models that we already have, which are based on past experiences, well, if that's all we had as our repertoire, then we wouldn't be able to meet what's new and unexpected. Instead, we have another side of ourselves that can kind of you know, escalate into better, more, you know, innovative or deliberative thinking. And that's really important. And one of the most interesting facets of uncertainty, one thing that really seems to, you know, enable people to change their minds about uncertainty as weakness or paralysis is simply that, you know, uh, uncertainty is not just uncomfortable, but it's actually uncomfortably, it, the, the, uncomfort, the discomfort of uncertainty is good for us. So how, what do they mean by that? Basically, when you meet something new, like a traffic jam on the road that's unexpected. Yesterday, there was just this morning on my way to my office, there was a roadblock, it's a detour. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's unexpected. And, and you, there are physiological responses in the body, like your heart might beat because you're late for your call, first call. Or, and, but there are also changes in the brain. And this is all kind of newly discovered. Your focus widens, your working memory is bolstered, your brain literally becomes receptive to new data when you're uncertain. And this is true in medicine as it is in daily life. Uncertainty is what scientists call arousal. It's wakefulness. And so it actually puts us in a kind of primes us to learn. And that's really exciting. And when you can realize that the stress of uncertainty is actually equipping you to be on your toes and to do better, then that's really exciting rather than something to fear. Yeah, but what are you supposed to do about it? How is, how is someone supposed to gauge this is an acceptable level of ambiguity or not? Well, I'm uncertain because there is ambiguity in these parameters or in what I'm supposed to do or what is a positive result or any of that stuff. How does someone... Turn this into a practical thing that helps people instead of just saying, oh, it's good for you. Well, there are a lot of practical things that one can learn from uncertainty. But what I just was explaining was a very important starting point because people fear uncertainty, because they retreat from it when they're uncomfortable, because it's so often you know, seen as something to be avoided. I'm saying you have to take advantage of that situation. And then the next step is that uncertainty provides a space for thinking. So for instance, you know, people who are more tolerant of uncertainty are better arguers, better negotiators. They actually uh, listen and they are better at understanding the other side. They're more flexible thinkers. That's been shown again and again. So I think it, you know, a lot does relate to our approach and our attitude toward uncertainty. But maybe you can be more specific about what you would like to ask about practical. I think what I'm talking about is quite practical. No, I'm sure it is. I just don't know how, you know, is there a common situation that someone would face where you could coach them through how to identify the uncertainties in their situation and how to uh, kind of gauge for themselves? Is this too much? Am I going to be able to solve this? Is this at an okay level? You know, what does it feel like to deal with enough uncertainty versus too much. You know, if I feel like a bit stressed, that's okay. But if I feel like totally overwhelmed, I have no idea where to start. Okay, it's too much. We got to back it down. Like, what kind of situation do you hear about a lot where you're like, oh, okay, here's what you need. You do this and that, this and that, and that'll make the situation more tenable for you. 
Well, I think that when you're, if you're overwhelmed, then that's really highly related to being fearful of the unknown, fearful of the uncertainty. If you are basically have a positive attitude toward uncertainty, you know, studies show that you're more engaged with the situation as it comes. So I think that it's really important just to understand that uncertainty can be good stress. And when you have a positive attitude toward uncertainty, uh, then you are and you're understanding that the stress is actually equipping you to perform better. And that's really, really important point. You know, going back to the example of the surgeons, you know, if something goes wrong, the best kind of surgeon, the adaptive expert will actually, you know, transition out of their automatic kind of behavior. You know, the first response, the first thought we have again and again, whether we're trying to do creative thinking or we're trying to solve a crisis, is usually based on what came before. So your first thought is often insufficient. Uh, you have to get beyond that. And you're, you know, we're very geared toward just you know, whatever first comes to mind being seen as a good enough answer. But it's a really a kind of a struggle. You have to move beyond that. You have to take time. And but studies show that, for instance, people who if they're in the midst of a crisis, say the you know, the surgeon has some patient bleeding on the table and they, you know, they think it might be for X reason, well, it's really important to think, well, it might be for another reason or a third reason. And and then not just widen your options, but also test and evaluate each of those options. I mean, four-fifths of business decisions actually are usually carried out based on examining one option only, which is not um, correlated with success. So that's a really, I call it take two. You need to just take a moment to reconsider and consider. And that's, it. and I'm talking about in new and unpredictable situations. That's really important. Um, is there any really cool examples that you, you know, you used in the book you didn't, but where you saw someone, you know, wrestle with uncertainty and they really did a great job? Like they, you kind of saw their process on how they, you know, they define the edges better, let's say, and they were able to go forward and still get a good outcome. Any like uh, cool stories comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, not just the, the surgeon in the operating room who was not doing a good job, but showing how not to be a great expert, that that was really, really important. And But also I spent time with one of the world's greatest synthetic biologists, a fellow named Jim Collins at MIT. He created the first test for Ebola, Ebola, um, excuse me. And also he just invented, he and his laboratory, one of the first new antibiotics in 35 years. I mean, he's a MacArthur fellow, a, a, just an amazing person. I spent a lot of time with him because he really truly believes in the power of daydreaming. And what is daydreaming? It's it's literally the human ability to step away from the here and now and follow a thought. In science, they call it thought experiments. And so he kind of walked me through um, some of the ways in which he was doing this type of uncertainty in action. And he said that, you know, oftentimes he was trying to invent basically what turned out to be an electric insole to help older people keep, you know, prevent falling in older people. And he kept going around in circles, but you have to kind of stick with it. And then he went off in different tangents and detours, but yet he again stuck with it. And daydreaming is a really interesting balance between the use of the default mode, which is sort of an imagination network, a meaning-making but a loose associational kind of brain network, but it also works hand-in-hand -hand with executive centers of the brain, which is a very new discovery in, in neuroscience. And so basically daydreaming is kind of 
it's not the free-for-all, drifting, aimless kind of thinking that we assume it to be. I mean, it can be, but it's really a very guided, loosely guided type of thinking. And so uh, another neuroscientist who's done work showing that young people growing up in challenged environments, I mean, really difficult LA, Los Angeles, you know, gang-ridden high schools. I went and visited out there and talked to some of these young people. The young people who daydreamed were the ones who were more successful at school, more successful socially, and they also had more complex, you know, abstract reasoning ability. Uh, and this was, you know, really important for their identity. Like just as Jim Collins was has been creating scientific discoveries through letting his mind kind of drift along in a guided way and finding you know, kind of unexpected connections within science. So too, these young people from challenged environments were kind of, you know, going off on these mental expeditions to understand the future scenarios of what was possible in their lives. And it was really important. Daydreaming is actually highly related to control in thinking, being cognitively controlled. Uh, it, you would think it would be the opposite. But so I think that's, uh, those are really... people. Do people do controlled daydreaming or is it usually accidental? Well, all daydreaming, most daydreaming is related to the executive and the daydreaming or default mode centers of the mind. So basically, in order to, a lot of daydreaming is very coherent. It's usually future oriented. It's often related to planning. Jerome, Jerome Singer, the great initial first daydreaming scientist in the 60s and 70s called it, you know, daydreaming's purpose, he said, was the unfinished business of our lives. So what we do is kind of ask what if questions when we're daydreaming, and that's really important. And what I've been talking about is, again, another example of moving away from what is known. You know, we live our lives basically, you know, in a kind of routine, habit-driven kind of, we live our lives in a sort of, they call it predictive processing. We kind of know what's coming. We don't have to learn how to tie our shoelaces again, but we're constantly using these same mental models to expect the world to be as it is. And yet, when something is new and unexpected, and you get that jolt of uncertainty, that's the chance you have to understand the world as it now is, not as it was, as it, you know, to break from routine. So daydreaming is that chance, and deliberative processing by the adaptive expert is that chance, and even in group collaboration and teamwork in the office, they, you know, a lot of teams just talk about what they already know. They kind of slide into this lazy information processing, to quote one scientist, and a lot of teams just basically sit there with base, you know, doing meetings and, and discussions, you know, based on what's already known. And in order to move forward in life, you want to, to know what you don't know and then move into what you don't know and into the unknown. So it's a, this is, this is a lot of what I'm talking about in uncertainty is the ability to move away from what you already know. You know, I don't think it's just semantics, but how does ambiguity play into uncertainty and, and working with it? Yeah, ambiguity is a type of uncertainty. So ambiguity is the sort of ability or, you know, it's you're, you're able to see if something is ambiguous, it has multiple different, there are multiple different interpretations. Um, so it's not, uncertainty is bigger than that because it's more than just, you know, a situation or a, an object that has multiple interpretations. It's also could be, you know, many, there are many other facets to uncertainty, but ambiguity is just a type of uncertainty. Okay. There are certain kinds of ambiguity that create a lot of uncertainty, you know, 
ambiguity, like there's too many choices. The choices are all similar. They all have like really significant trade-offs, you know, or negative outcomes, that kind of thing. Like what, what are some of the hallmarks that make a situation uh, very difficult for somebody to, you know, to work in? Well, I don't know what you mean. Oh, like, you know, again, if I have, you know, if I'm in a situation, I have like a couple of different choices and none of them are really good. I mean, they all have like really, really significant trade-offs. You know, if I do this, well, I'll get a benefit, but it'll cause me a lot of problems. And if I do that, I might not get the benefit, but uh, I'll have these other problems. You know, just like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't type situations. I'm just wondering which ones are not more amenable to decision-making without uncertainty, but which ones are just, by their very nature, it's it's really, really difficult to deal with them. You know, uncertainty, no uncertainty, just the nature of the situation just makes it like almost impossible to work through. Well, but I think, yes, that's all great points, but I think it's also very subjective. I mean, what one ambiguous situation could be very challenging for one person, and it could be absolute delight for another, you know, a source of great curiosity. You know, so people who are curious by the disposition, the personality trait or state of curiosity is related to being drawn to difficult books and, you know, you know ambiguous artworks and new experiences and all that sort of thing. So ambiguity to a curious person is probably something that's really positive, uh, whereas someone who is not comfortable with, who's who's less curious, less willing to explore their environment and especially unseen meanings is less likely to delight in that kind of ambiguity. And I think what you might be asking is, you know, there has been a history of treating uncertainty as something that can be kind of mathematically, mathematically tackled, you know, almost like, you know. You can put bookends on things, though. You do. But at the same time, I'm really creating or and, and addressing a whole new type of understanding. You know, for so long, uncertainty has just been, A, treated as something to shut, you know, push under the rug or not treat or something that's just negative, but or to B, to we can, you know, numerically pin it down. We can make, you know, pro and con lists. We can put it into matrixes. We can data, data, data. And I think in that world, in this world, it's really important to have those types of responses to uncertainty. But there is a lot more going on in not just psychology, but many, many other disciplines related to new thinking about uncertainty. And so instead of trying to pin it down and make it specific and kind of rate uncertainty about, you know, whether it's 70% good to do this or, you know, whether or not we will have these kind of, whether or not people are aversive to losses under this circumstances and all the great Kahneman work. I still think, I think that there are a lot of people now who recognize that that's an insufficient understanding of uncertainty and that we need and should have more. You know, you can't, you can't, put a number on a daydream, but you can also find out that it can lead to really creative thinking and in a lot of different ways. And that's that, that's the research I'm putting forward. And I'm trying to understand that, you know, in between one reason I wrote this book is that I found when I began to research uncertainty as a sort of preface to good thinking that there are, you know, two kinds of 
literature on it. One was sort of woo woo, embrace uncertainty. There's no science there. And then the kind of black swan type thinking, which is, you know, brilliant and wonderful, but it kind of boils down to let's take mathematics and profit from the uncertainty that's around us, the unknowns that are around us. Let's get a likelihood. Let's assess it. Let's use percentage. And I think all of that's important, but there's a lot more to say about uncertainty. Mm. I, hope I hope I'm being clear. <laughs> Yeah. Well, where where can people get your book? Is it, I guess, available everywhere books are sold? And then once they go through it, what's how would they follow up with you and uh, see more of your work? Where can they go? Sure. Well, they can follow up or, or see more of my articles and podcasts like yours and interviews and press about the book on my website, which is Maggie, maggie-jackson.com. So maggie-jackson.com. There's a lot there, a lot of resources there about all my books and also, you can pretty much find the book everywhere. I'm, I'm happy to say that it's just gone into a second printing just three and a half months after it first came out uh, and has been getting a lot of attention. And so uh, it's uh, really should be out there as well as being available on all the online booksellers, Amazon, you know, bookshop, Barnes and Nobles, what have you. Okay, very good. Well, Maggie, thank you for coming. And I appreciate it. It's been an interesting call. Thank you. Well, thank you for your, you know, interesting questions. And I appreciate your um, inviting me to be on the show. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.